In mentioning that I was preaching on the first Sunday of Lent this year, a couple people pointed out to me that it's not like there aren't hard things going on in our world. Do we really need the hardness of Lent? So in the spirit of the season, here are just a few of those hard things that I've heard named recently. The ongoing war in Ukraine, the heartbreaking atrocities we're witnessing in Gaza and the violence that's now spreading throughout the region, the rise of Christian nationalism with a leader who started an insurrection and very well might be president again. Oh, and is likely to accept his party's nomination right here in Milwaukee this coming summer. Rampant climate change that we've known about for decades and that we've done next to nothing as a society to address. We've had maybe one week of real Wisconsin winter this season. One week. I'm turning into a Wisco winter curmudgeon. Yet another mass shooting this past week, this time at a Super Bowl victory party in Kansas City, becoming yet another blip in the media cycle that does nothing to actually change the conversation or our nation's relationship with firearms. More personally, there are so many challenges that face each of us, whether it's watching a loved one slowly slip away, or watching a loved one struggle behind bars, or dealing with the stresses of moving, or feeling financial pressures, or struggling with one's own health, whether that be physical or mental, or frustrations with your work environment, or other difficulties at work or at school. Oh, and there's still plenty of unfilled slots on the worship sign-up for Lent. And we still need to continue to have the conversation on a potential move in church location. Have I maybe gotten your blood pressure up just a little bit? Welcome to Lent! No, look, what I just shared is not what Lent's about. Okay, maybe it's part of it, but it's not the focus or what God wants for us in this season. What I just named to get your blood pressure up a little bit is the kind of stuff that we bring to this season. As Rachel mentioned last week, Amy shared a fantastic message and at one point said, I tend to see Lent not so much as a journey in the wilderness, but a chance to pack for the wilderness journeys that life will undoubtedly send us. That's what this season is. It's a chance for us to look at what we need for the journey ahead, a chance to reassess and refocus to help us better prepare for what we're dealing with and what's to come. Does that help with the optics of this season at all? Well, let's look at our passage from Genesis today, the rainbow. If there is one sign of hope, one symbol of love and radical inclusivity, it's the rainbow, right? God makes a unilateral covenant to say that they will never try to wipe out creation again. But hold the phone. Time out. We love this story for the rainbow, but we, we can't ignore what gets us there. What I just said, God makes this promise after almost wiping out all of creation, after committing mass genocide. It doesn't take much sitting with that image in how raw and nightmarish it must have been to see this is not so much a happy little Sunday school story and maybe more troubling than all the things I named a little earlier combined. A God that would destroy all creation? We can't see the power and the importance of the rainbow without naming this divine genocide. To do so is just another way that we simply look away and ignore. It's how we become desensitized 
to the disasters and genocides in our world. It can lead to such dissonance and hypocrisy as one of the end zones at last week's Super Bowl sharing the message, end racism, coupled with a racist logo right below it. Or more overt and awful indifference as going about our lives while whole areas of the world are bombed and whole peoples are killed, injured, and displaced. No, to truly experience, to truly not taste the rainbow Skittles, but understand the rainbow, we have to be honest about the unfathomable doom and destruction that it is born out of. Our God has had a change of heart. Wait, does that mean God changes? God changed their mind. Our God has set his bow in the clouds. He's laid down his weapon, refusing to fight the ineradicable evil in humans, at least with violence and destruction. Instead, God will send a son, which brings us to our gospel reading this week. I've read about this passage from the beginning of Mark not being unlike the scrawl at the beginning of a Star Wars movie. We're still in that initial part of the story, setting the stage. Unlike other Gospels, Mark is just flying through this time in Christ's story. Either he has very different priorities, or maybe just a much better editor than the other Gospels. We see you, longest Gospel, Luke. No hate, Chris. Seriously, though, as much as I love how other Gospels get into each of the pieces of the story that we cover today, as someone who appreciates good storytelling, there is something helpful and insightful about this brief, sparse style that Mark has. Other Gospels would see this as three distinct different events that usually each warrant a sermon to themselves. We have one, John baptizing Jesus and God naming Christ their son. Two, Jesus being driven out into the wilderness to spend 40 days tempted by Satan and hanging out with wild beasts and waited on by angels. Wait, what? Three, John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus begins his ministry sharing the good news. So let's just quickly look over these three pieces since upon some reading and reflection, they're pretty important pieces in our Lenten life toolbox or as Amy said, some of the things to pack for life's wilderness journeys. So first, Christ's baptism. Our Noah story ended with the rainbow and God's love. And our story here in Mark begins with that love manifested in a human being. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Just to point out that Luke and John omit this, and Matthew explains it away, but not Mark. What did Jesus have to repent of? I read many much more learned, thoughtful minds suggesting that John the Baptist's baptisms were to name and repent from social sins, not personal ones. Maybe, no, it's definitely, because I'm not a great academic and don't grasp the full theological implications of a Christ that would have to be baptized to repent from personal sin, but I don't know. If God can change her mind after a flood, couldn't a human Messiah also change their mind and repent? Maybe that's unsettling to some, but I find a lot of comfort in that. That feels like something we humans could understand. Anyway, Jesus is baptized by John, and the heavens are torn apart, and the Spirit descends like a dove on Jesus. And the voice of God says, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Quick side note. 
that I found pretty interesting. There are two places in Mark where the heavens are torn apart. Here, at Christ's baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, and then again at the very end of his ministry when he dies on the cross. The temple veil is torn apart. Apparently, the outer veil of the temple was essentially a gigantic 80-foot-high curtain that was a Babylonian tapestry with embroidery in blue and fine linen. There's a whole lot more detail, but the gist is that that portrayed on this tapestry was a panorama of the entire heavens. So when Mark says that the temple veil was torn apart, it was a very clear visual of the heavens being torn apart for anyone who knew or had seen the temple veil. So Jesus experiences God's love, and the Spirit descends on him, and he's immediately driven into the wilderness. Nice. Unlike other accounts of Jesus in the wilderness, Mark gives us one verse. What goes on for 40 days? It's mainly left to our imagination. Now, as someone who loves film, it reminds me a lot of good storytelling that knows when to let one's imagination fill things in. It lets us consider the wilderness in the context of our own experiences. How have you been in the wilderness? How have you been tempted? Jesus accepts the wilderness. What do we desire or tolerate instead of accepting the wilderness? Instead of asking hard questions? How do we distract ourselves instead of dealing with uncomfortable truths right in front of us? Or are there things you have named and accepted? Are there things or temptations you have overcome in your journey? Also, I wonder how Jesus' time as a carpenter prepared him for this and all that's to come. How was this time in the wilderness needed to help him align to God's way, to God's hopes and dreams instead of what had been his own? I think we can all relate to this space, to this wilderness, to this temptation, each in our own way. It's part of being human. It's part of living, right? But remember that first came the love of God and the Spirit drove Christ into the wilderness. We are in the wilderness. We are tempted because God's love compels us, because the Spirit moves us to learn and grow and try. And the only way to learn and grow and try in this life will mean experiencing the wilderness. But we also don't just stay there, do we? Christ doesn't remain alone. No, he will surround himself with people, with God's love in others, as imperfect and messy and tragic as it might be. And here we get to a part of the story that I hadn't really thought about much before, and frankly, I found really moving. Mark begins this portion of the story with, now after John was arrested. Yes, here again, we have a parallel with the beginning and end of Christ's teaching. At the beginning, John the Baptist will be betrayed, arrested, and handed over to the authorities, and at the end, it will be Christ's turn. But more importantly, it is John's arrest that moves Jesus from the wilderness to his ministry. Christ needs John the Baptist not only to baptize him, but to light the fire under him and show him the way out of the wilderness. What actions by others, whether of their own doing 
or forced upon them have changed you, have shaped you, have shown you a different way forward. Christ's message is born out of the love of God and tested in the wilderness, but it is also given urgency, direction, and purpose by something that happens to a fellow human that he loved and respected. I think that's beautiful and so true to the human experience. So Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, proclaiming the good news and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent, believe in the good news. He's echoing John the Baptist's call to repent, and he's adding something more, the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. When we talk about good news, it's easy for us today to just think of Jesus. Some of us grew up with the good news Bible. Or maybe younger folks will think of the first, the early days of the pandemic and John Krasinski's Some Good News web series. But it's really important for us to put this in the context of its time. Jesus is co-opting language used by the empire. Whenever Rome took over a new area or was victorious over another force, they would send out a euangelion, the good news. It was a proclamation to show the force and dominance of the Roman Empire. And here is some dude from a remote corner of the empire, kind of a remote corner even for Israelites, bringing the good news of a very different nature. How does this good news of the kingdom of God undermine or subvert the powerful forces at work in our world today? How does this good news recast what it means to be a human on this earth doing our thing? That can feel like big stuff, and it is, but also it's as personal and basic as whatever is going on with you. Repent means to refocus. Where is God at work in you, in our lives? How can you find, how can you make room to refocus and recognize God at work? A big hindrance to making that kind of space can be fear. I feel that all the time. But why? None of us are perfect. What do we have to fear? What do we have to be embarrassed about? We're all touched by loss and hurt and pain and insecurity and fear. We're human. What half-truths do we need to let go? What barriers within ourselves do we need to tear down to let the love of God in? To feel and know that even in the wilderness, God is with us. Christ is with us. The Spirit is with us. Here, at the beginning of Lent, we can see more than just the doom and gloom I named at the beginning. Yes, we see the challenges and temptations. Yes, we experience loss and feel the pain of seeing devastating things happen to people we love. We also hear the message to repent, to refocus, to turn toward God and believe this good news. And we know that wherever we find ourselves, however we feel, all of this is couched in the love of God. 
Everything is undergirded with hope and love that will carry us through Lent and all of life. Hope and love promised in an unconditional covenant and visually manifested in a rainbow. It was that love that sent us Jesus, and it was that love, that spirit of love, that drove Jesus into the wilderness and compelled him to preach this love, this same love that made a covenant with all creation. And so in response to all those forces and feelings and real things that I named at the beginning of my message, and in the spirit of repenting and believing in this good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, I would like to end by naming some things that believing in this good news means to me. I believe that the kingdom of God is at hand, and neither Trump, nor Biden, nor Putin, nor any other earthly human actor can stop that. I believe that the kingdom of God is at hand, and we must stop desensitizing ourselves and ignoring the challenges of our world. God's love is bigger than hatred and guns and violence and racism and climate change and disease and you name it combined. And because of God's love and the Spirit, we are compelled to name and act. Each of us will do that differently. We won't be compelled in the same way. It will be as unique as every one of us, but we mustn't be overwhelmed by these challenges. God is with us, and so we must lean into what God's love compels each of us to do. And right now, God's love compels me to share some things that I believe that are a little harder for me to say, but they're important for me to name and hopefully helpful for you to hear. I believe that all the saints that have gone before us, including our big brother Dominic, whose infectious smile and twinkle in his eye lives on with all who loved him, now know the love of God in a way that we all still cannot fathom. I believe that those of us that lose ourselves in brain-altering drugs or diseases like dementia or Alzheimer's, loved ones like Greg's grandmother or Candy, however far these forces might remove or distort their personality or memory, even if or when they no longer know themselves, let alone any of us, will always have and know the love of God. I believe that we, as a church family, and I myself as a member of this church family, have failed each other. And part of that is just the nature of a small lay-led group trying to follow Christ, but there have been difficult times when we have not shown the love of God in ways we should have. And we can explain that away and make valid excuses, but it doesn't lessen that truth. So if you have experienced that failure of love, from this church family, from me. I'm sorry. 
I believe that whatever the challenges and limitations and frustrations of this church family, we have played an important part in each other's lives. You have played an important part in my life and my spiritual well-being. And I believe that wherever we decide regarding our worship location, we as a church family have an important part to play in God's work in our lives and in our world. I know that I've gotten things wrong, probably in some of the stuff I've just said. And I'll continue to make a mess of things in the future. But with this unconditional love, I'll also keep trying. I'll keep trying to follow Christ in ways that are true to me and my journey, and I pray that we as a church family will do the same. Because I'll continue to need you all to help guide me, support me, challenge me, and show me God's love as I continue to try. Oofta. Welcome to Lent. Just like life, it ain't always easy. But also like life, the more honest and open and loving we are, the more opportunity we will have to learn and grow, the more we can help realize the kingdom of God at hand all around us.